Going green's in the news these days, and the environment's on everyone's mind. But what about travelers? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Exploring another culture enriches us. It makes us better citizens of the world. But fuel emissions we create while traveling damage the very things we travel to see. It erodes classic buildings and statues, changes sensitive weather patterns, and jeopardizes great sights everywhere. Michelle Berenfeld from the World Monuments Fund joins us in a little bit to update us on our world's 100 most endangered sites. Which important cultural and historic sites are in danger, and what can we do to help protect them? But first, we'll take a look at one of the world's oldest and greenest methods of travel, sailing, and how sailing clubs offer an economical and non-polluting travel opportunity. Whether you're dreaming of sailing the seven seas or just want to be reminded of the world's precious but fragile treasures, let's fall in love all over again with Mother Earth on today's Earth Day edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Sailing doesn't have to be a rich person's hobby. Thirty years ago, Anthony Sandberg started a club on San Francisco Bay. His mission? To open up sailing to everybody, especially those who couldn't afford to buy a boat or hire a crew. Today, Anthony continues to spread his love of sailing by turning curious travelers of all ages and incomes into experienced sailors. He'll join us in a moment to explain how sailing clubs are getting landlubbers out on the water in a way that's carbon neutral. And later, to commemorate Earth Day on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an update on the 100 most endangered sites in the world. The latest list from the World Monuments Fund includes heritage sites, urban neighborhoods, important buildings, and ancient churches. These sites are threatened by development, climate changes, war, and even just a lack of interest or resources to preserve them. We'll find out what's at stake and what's being done to help coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I think it's time to take a sail. We're going to talk about the magic of sailing, and we're joined by Anthony Sandberg. Anthony is the founder and president of OCSC in Berkeley, California, the nation's largest single-location sailing school. Anthony, uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me aboard, Rick. Tell me again, OCSC, what does that stand for? It's the longer name is Olympic Circle Sailing Club. But in today's world, that would be a huge URL. So OCSC is how we go. Uh, Basically, you got sailing in your blood, like most people who love to sail, and you're a proponent of sailing as a a sport. Absolutely. And I grew up sailing. I grew up in the Hawaiian Islands and have sailed all around the world. My uh, heritage is Norwegian. And with uh, my father had 11 brothers, so 11 uncles, all who are sailors, you know, being a brain surgeon wasn't going to work in my family (laughs) program. (laughs) So back in 1979, you you founded a a little club for sailors in Berkeley. I did. I say little because I I read you had a little camper van or something, and it was sort of a humble Well, to be frank, it was the Berkeley garbage dump. And I I had read that that was going to be changed over to uh, City Park, and there was a window of opportunity that allowed me to get the prime location in all of North America. It just happened to be a dump at that time. But a wonderful recycling project has happened, and now it's a marvelous park with six acres directly on San Francisco Bay. Wow. Weren't you lucky to grab that back in 79? That was a good thing and a good time. (laughs) So (laughs) So way back then, why did you start a sailing club? You know, I loved the sport, but I thought it needed to be reinvented. Unfortunately, most people say, I'd love to sail, but, and the big but is, I can't afford a boat. But that shouldn't be any more of a restriction than not playing tennis because you can't afford a tennis court. It's a matter of having skill and sharing equipment. I thought there was an opportunity to recreate the sport of sailing. There's always been sailing schools and there have always been yacht clubs, but there hasn't been that balance where you could have the best of the entire sport without that commitment to ownership. It kind of makes sense to cooperatively own big fancy boats, doesn't it? It really does. You know, and beyond the one expense and the other is time, But the most important thing is other people to play with because just because you own a big fancy boat, you could be a lonely guy in the marina. But to have a club and all of the support system that goes along with other people to play with, sharing your toys is a much better way to go. Wow. You can make a good case that for a tiny fraction of the money it takes to be a fancy sailboat owner, you could have more fun being a very busy and generous contributor to a sailing club. 
Absolutely. And then the club can extend itself by being a good citizen, and we help promote getting actually thousands of disadvantaged kids out on the water. You know, so we collect money from the rich and give it to the poor, the Robin Hood uh, approach. Do you have reciprocal memberships with other clubs? Yes, we do have relationships with clubs all around the world. Now how does that work? Well, we have checked out charter companies in South Africa and Argentina and Greece and Tahiti. So we know the equipment and we know the standards that those people have. So if you're a member of our club or you're a client of our club, you can easily go to these other places and step right on a boat and know that you have the skill to handle it well, and so does the proprietor of that operation. Uh, so clubs, before they join a, a relationship that way, they want to know they have standards because they're going to avail their boats to these strangers? Absolutely. I mean, just as you would with flying or anything else, you're going to be using equipment in strange areas. You want to know that these people are trained. But if you've learned how to sail specifically on San Francisco Bay, I mean, that's our great advantage. You're used to strong winds, tides, currents, fog, and the whole package of shipping channels. So you have quite a nice set of skills. That's good for your people who go over there. But what about those guys that come to California and take your boats? Have you had any uh, bad experiences with that? Well, we haven't because most people to sail, and it's fully understood that our people can go anywhere and folks from other places when they come here are probably going to need to have some training or at least some tune-up because they're just not used to the strong winds. So that's classically what happens is they'll take some instruction before they get out on the bay. So I've never thought of San Francisco Bay as a great sailing area. I don't know, but it just never occurred to me that good. But, uh, but mm-hmm. you call it the, uh, the best single location for sailing in America. Well, you know, it really is. We have that cold water off the coast, and we have the heat in the in, uh, Sacramento Valley, and that creates a wind machine. And sailing is about having wind. So sailing around much of the world is pretty much waiting for a few hours of light breezes in the mid-afternoon. Here, March through October, typically it'll start at 10 or 15 knots of wind in the morning and build to 15 to 25, even 30 knots in the afternoon. So I would call it um, an advanced or black diamond kind of experience. If you have the skill, Hmm. then you're in a position to really have the energy. Kind of like surfing. If you're good, you want the wind. There you go, if you're good. The San Francisco is famous for its, uh, I guess, lousy weather. That's a good thing from when you're a sailor because that's that hot and that cold coming together. Exactly right, exactly right. So if you're from another area and you haven't seen that or had that introduction, but in the same way, if you go to Hawaii and you see those big waves, as a surfer... You need some tune-up, but then it'll ruin you because that's what you want for the rest of your time. Uh, I read you've had thousands of graduates go through your club, Most, actually 50% of them women. That's right, and we're really proud of that. Probably in the industry, it's probably in the neighborhood of 20 or 25% mm. uh, female. But um, it's very, we have female instructors as well as male, and we're very woman-friendly. So it's not an old-boys network. No, and I want to break that too. I want to redesign the sport from top to bottom. There's nothing about the sport that takes strength. It's about technique and feel and um, intellectual ability. So you're really, in the same way you're flying a plane, you know you're not flapping your arms. <laughs> you're just you're guiding it. The same with sailing. Well, that's a good you're analogy. You're steering the boat. Yeah, right. there you go. I'm talking with Anthony Sandberg, and Anthony is the founder and president of OCSC, uh, the nation's largest single-location sailing school in Berkeley, California. To learn more about uh, Anthony's work and his club, the website is OCSC.com. Anthony, tell me still a little more about these clubs. Of course, you've got your club, but I suppose the, the basic equation is the same everywhere. As long as you've got wind and water and enthusiasts, people can come together and, and make a club happen. Do you have a membership fee and then monthly dues and then you pay for each sale, or, or what's the economy of it? For starters, everyone is welcome, and it's kind of surprising to people, but we say this is an open resource, and I, one of my major goals is to open the sport of sailing, frankly, teach the world to sail. So... We have a beautiful clubhouse. It's 10,000 square feet, and it's totally open to the public. We have parties and movies and lectures and dinners and seminars, and so many of those things are free just to encourage people to explore or get a taste test or make some friends around the sport. If you want to sail actively and regularly with us, indeed, you can be a member, but you don't have to. But as a member, you get discounts and advantages in terms of the price. You're taking lessons as far as you wish to go. There are seven major levels of certification, not different from scuba diving, let's say. You can have basic skills for basic conditions, or you can go all the way through bareboat charter, which is what most people want, so they can go to Tahiti or Greece or Caribbean and rent a larger yacht for a vacation. And then we also teach offshore sailing and celestial navigation if you want to sail around the world. 
So that whole range is there. We have 50 boats, so we're really a substantial operation now. And those boats range from 24 feet to 82 feet. So there's a broad range of toys that you have to play with. Many people might take out a 24-footer one day and a 50-footer the next. That sounds more fun than having the same boat all the time. I mean, you might be in the mood for a little runabout or a big cruise with a lot of people helping out. Well, absolutely. And by not owning a boat, you're free to say, well, gosh, I'd love to sail in Mexico. That's four hours away. You go down there with some friends and you rent a boat. It costs less than running a condominium. Hmm. and uh, you have a real adventure. So the, the world becomes your oyster. You really are in a position to play. You sound almost evangelical about the beauty of sailing. Uh, tell me, what motivates your mission? I mean, you're probably beyond worrying about just paying your rent for the place. What, what, what motivates you? I think we all want to have a feeling that we're contributing in this world. You know, there are plenty of challenges. But sailing brings people out, away from that big screen TV and into a direct contact with nature. And I think that that's so critical for all of us is to, to have a, um, a, a relationship with ourselves and other people in an environment in which we're not bombarded with advertising and all of the commercialism. The direct nature of just using the wind is so delightful and organic and inexhaustible. I, I think it's a good mission for me. <laughs> and it sounds like part of it is you're just interested in, in making it accessible to normal people. You don't need to be rich to enjoy that thrill. And, you know, part of it is if you get out on the water and you cherish it and, and you look forward to it, when we have an accident like we did, uh, the oil spill on San Francisco Bay, it really damaged a lot of our territory and it'll take years to fully recover the environment. If you fall in love with the bay or the woods and the mountains, you're probably going to be an advocate for keeping it in good shape for the next generation. That's more important than ever. Now, you can make a case for the eco-friendliness of sailing. You call it sailing lightly on the water? Yeah, I feel compelled to, to really get people to fall in love with the waterways. And from that, I believe that they'll become great advocates for the Bay. When we had an oil spill back in December of 07, hundreds and frankly thousands of sailors and surfers and kayakers really put up a stink about the fragile nature of our Bay and the fact that we want it protected. Hmm. The social nature of a club will inspire everybody to speak out together, I would imagine, because it's uh, absolutely they value that. I'm talking with Anthony Sandberg, and Anthony is the founder and president of the nation's largest single-location sailing school located in Berkeley, enjoying San Francisco Bay and all of its wind. Eight seven seven three 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 rick That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. We'll continue exploring the fine and wind-powered art of sailing in just a moment. And later in the hour, we'll look at some of the important historical and cultural sites around the world that are in danger of disappearing, maybe within our lifetimes. We're looking for ways to enjoy our world and learn from it while making our own footprints a little lighter. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Anthony Sandberg. He is the founder and president of the Olympic Circle Sailing Club, OCSC, the biggest single-location sailing school in the United States, based in Berkeley, 
California. His website, OCSC.com. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Our telephone number, 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Ryan in Seattle has called with some ideas about sailing. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Going good. I got my interest in boating about a year ago in correlation with my plans to travel to South America. And I was wondering, as far as beginner goes, how would it be possible in an affordable way to sailing with goals of going beyond our country? Starting from scratch, sailing from the West Coast to the USA down to uh, South America. All right. Ryan, you know, my best recommendation would be to take a couple of intermediary steps between buying a boat and sailing the the big oceans down there. Mm -hmm. With your enthusiasm for the sport, you could so easily take some basic lessons and walk the docks, check in at yacht clubs. The greatest shortage in the sport of sailing is enthusiastic crew that has the time to go on an adventure and travel. So you could easily find yourself a good boat, a good skipper, and enjoy the sail and pick up a lot of lessons before you ever had to be committed to owning your own boat. Uh Aha. Sounds good. That sounds like uh, prudent advice. (laughs) (laughs) Go out there and sail around the world all alone. Sir Francis Chichester, no problem. (laughs) All right, Ryan, thanks. Thank you. All right. And we have an email from Mike in Andover, and Mike writes us, He's been sailing in New England for over 40 years and noticed that fewer people seem to be around the harbor, even though there's more boats than ever. Many boats just lay on their mooring. Uh, Do you see large boat sailing losing some of its appeal because of the skill and effort it takes to actually take the boat out? Uh, It can't be cost-related or power boats would be staying in also. It's an interesting observation. You know, as I mentioned, it's the process of finding other people to play with. So if hmm. you'll never find an m- empty marina. Almost all marinas, especially if they have sailboats, are full. Classically, it's because people buy boats when they don't know how to sail, scare themselves and their friends, and then sell the boat to somebody else who doesn't know how to sail. So that's the cycle of yachting, and that's what we want it to break. The active boats are going to be the ones that have a competent skipper and a group of friends. I mean, if you if you go flying with somebody who knows what they're doing, probably go again. You barely uh, barely land, you probably say thanks a lot, and that's that's it for that. Introducing people to some interesting options rather than the burden of owning a boat, the joy of being in a club. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. You know, I've been thinking about old men who love their boats, and then they get too... Um, old and uh, in an economic situation where they really shouldn't be owning a boat themselves. Is Mm -hmm. there a way for these salty old retired guys or gals to still be sailing and and find the camaraderie and the affordability through these clubs? Is there any mechanism to help them uh, enjoy their golden years that way? Absolutely. You know, one of the wonderful things about sailing is that it's a group activity. You don't need to have five or six skippers on a boat. In fact, that may not be recommended. You're better off having people who just want to be together. And so in those later years, you don't have to grind winches and and jump sails up. You can simply enjoy the company and the conversation. And I would say that's as big a part of the sport as really making a boat move through the water. You've been at this, Anthony, since 79. Have you seen that uh, in your sort of social circle? Guys that used to be leaders, now they're, they still have it in their blood, but they, they just need to kind of go along and, and help out. Well, I, I'll tell you, that's really one of the joys of the sport. When you're on board with a good sailor, you'll find them probably doing very little, which means that they've set the younger ones up to steer, to handle the lines, do the navigation. There's a mentoring that goes along with this that allows you to have a place way, way later than you might be able to play tennis or uh, Oh, that's a beautiful concept that these guys, because I just know so many guys, they're just sailors forever, and they can be mentors even if they're not cranking away in the winters. Absolutely. Larissa in Seattle uh, emails us. She said she's enjoyed sailing all over the Northwest in the Puget Sound and the San Juans, and she says while using wind power is fun, enjoyable, and carbon neutral per se, it does seem to have a, a lot of prop and gear heavy travel, and that relies on supplies and plenty of needs, which are not carbon neutral. Uh, She wonders when you take a long sail voyage, if you really measured it, would it be that much less polluting from a global warming point of view than using a motorboat? Yeah, I would have to say absolutely. When you think about traveling as I do, it takes 10, 12 days to go from San Francisco to Hawaii. And the entire time, we may use five gallons of fuel. I mean, just to get out of the marina, 
and when we dropped the sails around Diamond Head and then motor across to the Alawai Canal. And the rest of the time, nature has provided those trade winds and has blown us there. Now, in terms of the other supplies, no different than going camping. I mean, you take on the food that you're going to have, but that's it. I mean, once you have a boat, now when you can compare that to motivating a boat for 2,500 miles, oh, we're talking hundreds or thousands of gallons of fuel. Yeah. So, I, so I think we qualify pretty well for being a, a so good you, way to So you go. feel like the future of sailing will be more and more clearly an eco-friendly form of recreation. You call it sailing lightly on the water? We teach as part and parcel of our training. For example, we use four-cycle engines instead of two, so we're not spilling oil on the water. We're um, using uh, bottom paints that aren't containing poisonous elements that you know will, will destroy the sea life. Uh, there is just absolutely no excuse for pumping anything overboard now. There's holding tanks, and there's great ways to treat material. And you certainly, in the old days, are not going to throw anything overboard at any point. You know, 2,000 miles off the coast, there's no excuse for throwing plastic overboard. So there's an ethic even beyond not using a gas-powered engine, sailing lightly on the water among good sailors then. Absolutely, and being conscious in the same way that um, scuba diving has made great progress in encouraging divers not even to touch coral now. Now that we know, I mean, we were ignorant before, but now that we know that that is, even has an effect. Another value of a sailing club, which can share that ethic, I would imagine, with other sailors. That's right. That's now, right. Anthony, for me, the mystique of sailing is getting out in the open sea and going for days without seeing land and being just at one with the ocean. Is that something that has a, an allure to you, or, or is that just you're trying to get to the island? No, I, you know, the process of sailing, I think, is more than anything, it's the journey and not the destination. I mean, the reason you sail is to be free and in direct connection with that greater environment. So the experience of sailing down the coast of uh, the United States or sailing the Caribbean, or, you know, and that wonderful sail from here to Hawaii, which we do every couple of years, is just uh, uh, like going off in a spaceship to another universe. And, of course, you're visited by whales and dolphins and seas of jellyfish and a connection that, you know, the BBC film crew would love to capture. So my first time, I left home and I sailed uh, when I was 16. And, uh, really? I've been doing it with, ever since. With, a, with a buddy or, or what? Well, that was uh, actually left home and got aboard a square rig vessel. It was a brigantine, and uh, the kind that with the square sails, those that you climb up oh. the mast and out on your stomach on the yard arms, jerking sails ah. up and down. How, how many so, days uh, does it typically take to sail from mainland United States over to Hawaii? You know, it can all depend. I mean, I, I know of people who are in a 30-foot boat and have taken 80 days, but that's because they didn't know how to navigate, and they went back and forth. But classically, one would, would take a, a period of a couple of weeks. It would be a standard thing for um, an, a yacht most people would own. So you're out there not seeing any land for two weeks. What do you miss most when you're in the middle of nowhere? Um, probably that, that the trip's going to end. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> <Good answer>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you not miss most? What are you so thankful yeah. to be away from? You know, the, the whole thing, and, and you know as a great traveler that you are, that it's, it's the people, not, not the place. So, you know, you could go anywhere with the right group and nowhere with the wrong group. So I was going to ask you what the greatest joy at sea is, and you'd say the camaraderie of your... your... It's, I'd say the camaraderie and the freedom and the, the sense of accomplishment. I mean, you, you, you know, a well-sailed ship is going to be a happy ship. It's going to be people are well-fed, they're not in trouble, and you, um, you're comfortable and confident with what, what's going on. It takes leadership. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So you don't want just kind of a throw-together hippie ship in which yeah. everybody's the boss and nobody's the boss. And there's some uh, rigor around the process of sailing a boat properly. Isn't there sort of a breed of sailor that just wants to be alone and actually sail alone? Oh, no doubt. You know, I mean, there are people who amaze me beyond belief that they uh, will sail around the world alone in 70 days or 150 days. And a very particular breed of person, you know, and there are others who climb those mountains, you know, and, and risk life and limb. So that's, that's not my style <laughs> of sailing, but uh, I appreciate that it, it can be done. Olga in Vancouver, Washington emailed us. She says, uh, I've heard of sailing in Turkey in the Mediterranean. How expensive is it? Is it something that would be appropriate for a family with a couple of kids age 8 and 12? How much time would you want to take for a cruise along the Turkish coast? What do you know, Anthony, about cruising in Turkey? Well, I've been doing it about every other year for 40 years. I absolutely love Turkey, and I think Turkey's coast is probably the last section of really authentic 
Mediterranean coastline left. There's still little fishing villages. There's still unexplored harbors and coves. If you're a sailor of moderate skill, it's not a difficult place to sail. Anytime between June and September, you can go for as little as a week out of Marmaris or Bodrum and have a marvelous time on the turquoise coast. If you're not a sailor or you'd like a little more comfort, you can rent a goulette, and that's another world-class vacation. Very affordably, they can accommodate six to maybe 12 people, depending on how large a vessel you have. But it'll come with a captain and a cook and a crew, and you can sail. They're mostly motor sailors, but you'll explore uh, really some of the finest sailing area in the world. And the nice thing is you don't have great distances to go. An hour or two, and you're in a brand-new harbor or a brand-new cove, and there are ancient ruins from a dozen different cultures there to explore. So oh, wonderful place to that go. that sounds great. Every other year for 40 years, you've done Turkey. That really speaks uh, volumes for the beauties of sailing the Turkish coast. Uh, and the Turkish people and the yeah. food, and, um, you know, it's all good stuff. You know that. As a tour guide, some yeah. of my favorite memories, uh, I have a friend who I've done a lot of tours with in Turkey, and we dropped the group off in, I believe it was Antalya, and on the south mm-hmm. coast there, and we would sprint down the dock. We'd give them time for a cup of coffee or something, and we would just negotiate on the spot with the different uh, boat owners in the harbor to take us out on a, on a little, you know, half-day cruise. And it was very easy, right in the spot, to make a deal, and they would take an hour to do some shopping, and they'd, they'd cook us a nice meal, and we'd go cruising to a little remote town, like you mentioned, some ancient mm-hmm. ruins that go right literally into the sea. They'd cook us a, a barbecue on the deck while we're swimming, and uh, just an idyllic, sort of a magical experience, and we could just do it impromptu along the Turkish coast. I don't know how it gets any better than that. <laughs> and the food in Turkey, you know, is, it's so heavy with vegetables and beautiful oils, and uh, essentially, oh, yeah. you know, the whole country's organic, so it's yeah. great. Tell me a little more, Anthony, about, you mentioned Turkey is one of the least developed coastlines. What do you find? You've done it for 40 years. What do you look for in these remote spots? Yeah, you know, you can go a a place like Gocek, uh, for example, and and Fethiye Bay is just uh, a beautiful area. Now, of course, there is some development happening uh, in that coast, and Turkey is um, experiencing a real economic revival. But you still will find, and if there's a place to drop an anchor, there's probably a Turk with a small grill and some fresh fish who will cook you an amazing meal right there on the shore. So that's what I look for is, uh, you know, uh, stopping in some of the towns. I mean, Bodrum is a, just a Riviera-style place with discotheques and fine restaurants and lots of activity and some noise. Mm-hmm. But you can uh, get out and go to the Dacha Peninsula and find yourself um, seeing the same thing Alexander the Great did when he marched through that area with his troops. So an opportunity to mix desolation and urban commotion and history and art and good food and swimming and the whole thing. Uh, absolutely. All you right. can't wear it out. <laughs> can't wear it out. And that's just one corner of the world that sailors can enjoy. Nicole in Dallas emailed us. She writes, uh, there seem to be appealing sailing charters and schools all over the Mediterranean and Adriatic. What do you recommend in terms of ferreting out the most competent sailing outfits and best services? Are there certifications? How do you make sure all the fees are up, covered up front and so on? Yeah, what are the ins and outs of uh, chartering a sailing boat or, a, or joining a club or something in the Mediterranean or the Adriatic? The wonderful thing is we have this thing called the web, and I don't know what you can ask for that you can't find out at least personal opinions and recommendations. Certainly doing some of that research, picking an area, and uh, determining on how intense an experience you want to have. Virtually any place that has boats and sailing will have skippers and yachts for charter for a week or two weeks. And you can learn some things. You can learn um, a, a variety of skills. And a lot of it is just great exposure. If you're looking for serious instruction, You know, I would say probably up in Britain and the Brittany coast of France, there's more challenge. Ireland has terrific conditions. Hmm. But then again, I tend towards the uh, approach of getting more rigorous training. But uh, a little bit of research, and you can easily find uh, places with good recommendations throughout the Mediterranean. Anthony, I'm a I'm a motor boater from just because who my dad is from since I was a kid. Mm. And if I wanted to get uh, introduced here as an adult with enough money to you know have the experience I want anywhere in the world, but an introduction mm-hmm. to just the magic of sailing, I don't want to be an expert. I just want to get my hands uh, dirty, roll up my sleeves, and and, and experience it. Um, mm-hmm. What would you recommend? With us, uh, I would say come for a weekend. Do the crew course where we spend two days just opening up the sport and giving you a broad sense of the skills you need to be really helpful and have a good time on a boat. 
We do it on San Francisco Bay, and by the end of a weekend, you've circumnavigated the major islands and all the bridges, um, and you have a real sense of, of movement and control that's necessary. So that's one approach. And then I've got my appetite wet, and then I want to go to mix in some cultural exotic, uh, some, some, some distant travel as well. All over the world, frankly, any place that's worth sailing recreationally has lovely yachts available for charter. Now, I'll go to Turkey, and, and when we do, we'll typically rent 12 yachts, and our whole membership will fill up those boats with their friends and family, and we'll sail the coast. And So you can go anywhere you like and pick any spot that seems attractive, the coast of Mexico or Tahiti or Greece or South Africa, and there'll be boats and skippers, and you could easily short-circuit the process. So if you wish to learn how to sail the boat yourself, you certainly can, but you don't need to. You can have a very confident skipper and have a great family vacation. And no hard feelings with the crew that's really more engaged then. They, they don't mind somebody who goes along to help out. No, not at all. There's a magic of sailing. I, in some of your uh, writing on your website, I was reading, uh, Kennedy said, we're all tied to the sea, and sailing takes us back from where we came. For you, what's the mark of a good sailor in terms of uh, connecting with the magic of sailing? I, I think sharing is a big part of it, the willingness to really not be that, that kind of skipper that says, you know, I'm the center of the universe and uh, everybody watch me. Instead, mm -hmm. it's a matter of taking great pleasure and joy in, in exposing people and showing them what they can do, giving them inspiring confidence to take another step and, and pursue it. So it's it's that giving forward because nobody became a good sailor without having a lot of mentoring in their background. So it's a, it's a sharing thing. Boy, you know, there are all kinds of ways to experience nature. I know that there are engineering types that just love all the gear and just want to shape the sails perfectly. But I think being out and the, the bigger that you get, you know, you're looking out at the wind and water and the animal life um, and you're connecting to the universe and that's what, it, that's what works for me. Anthony Sandberg, founder of Olympic Circle Sailing Club, the biggest single-location sailing school in the United States from Berkeley, California. Uh, if people want to learn more about your work, they can go to your website, ocsc.com. Thanks for the uh, insight into your passion and, I would say, the inspiration. Bon voyage. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Travel can be both good or bad for our planet. How can we offset the damage we cause by traveling? Up next, we'll find out what we can do to help preserve our world's 100 most endangered sites and what we're at risk of losing from our own culture and from those around the planet. It's on Travel with Rick Steves. Moi m'appelle Patrick Noël, mon voyage exclusive l'eau l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. And that was Creole for... I'm Patrick Noel, and I travel with Rick Steve to Mauritius in the 500 kilometers from Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Mon nom, c'est Patrick Noel, mon voyage avec Rick Steves, et me descend lors l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. Cool. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. With all the talk of climate change and uh, pollution and global tourism and all the fragile and precious natural and historical and artistic sites on our planet, we might wonder what's endangered and what's not and why and what can we do about it. There's an organization called the World Monuments Fund and they publish the world's 100 most endangered sites, a listing talking about what is threatened by the modern pace of life on our planet. Michelle Berenfeld is the director of initiatives there, and she joins us today to talk about the latest list of the world's 100 most endangered sites. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Michelle, tell me more about this 
world's 100 most endangered sites list. Why do you do this, and how often does this come out? Well, the list comes out every two years. So on every even-numbered years, we announce a list of 100 most endangered sites. And the reason we do it really is so WMF, the World Monuments Fund, can take a sort of snapshot of the state of cultural heritage around the world. And we do that by asking people from all corners of the earth and also all types of people, both government agencies, independent conservators, professionals of all kinds, to nominate sites to our list and tell us why they're endangered and why they need to be saved. And while we don't have time to go through all 100 today, people can see the latest listing at worldmonumentswatch.org. That's right. And you can learn about each individual site on that website. Okay, so worldmonumentswatch.org. Now, you probably have enough history with this organization to see changes every two years. What's, what's the big news in your mind? When you looked at this new list for this year, how does it change from two years ago? Well, every year we see a new series of threats as well as some of the same old ones over and over again. Of course, things are old and they crumble, and that's always a problem. But this year we really see that the human factor is the biggest impact that we're seeing on cultural heritage sites around the world. And by the human factor, I mean the things that humanity is doing on the planet. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, the climate change is one major threat that we're now seeing that's actually impacting cultural heritage sites now, not just something that we're predicting for the future. So we have climate change, pollution, and global tourism. Let's talk um, concrete examples here. I guess concrete wouldn't be uh, affected so much, but let's talk precious <laughs> heritage examples. On climate change, what's being affected by climate change by your estimate? Well, I think one of the first things that we started to see are perhaps things that might um, one might expect is that the sites in the polar regions, and it's hard for us to imagine that there's cultural heritage sites sometimes in the North Pole and the South Pole. But um, for instance, in Antarctica, there are the explorers' huts that were left there in the early 20th century by the men who first went to look for the South Pole. And these buildings are actually built by these men and are time capsules of their travels. And they're standing on one of the most vulnerable places on earth now. And in order to enable us to be able to learn about them and know what those men did and lived through. We have to try to protect them. Did I understand that Scott's hut is actually being covered up by more snow? In yeah, that was a sort of interesting surprise for us. I mean, we often think about Antarctica and the polar sites in general as melting. But one of the things that I've learned about Antarctica is that actually a lot of snow can sometimes mean warmer temperatures. And this is still very much under investigation by the scientists who work there, but there are changes in the climate of Antarctica that are impacting the way with any cultural heritage site, you're concerned about if it's lived under one set of circumstances for a long time, when those circumstances change, that makes that site more vulnerable. So okay. if it had always been in a place where it was dry and it's suddenly wet, that causes problems. Talk about desertification encroachment by a, a spreading desert. Is anything threatened that way? Well, there's a number of very important sites all through an area, a band of the wide part of the continent of Africa. Um, one site on our list is called the Chinguetti Mosque, which is in Mauritania, which is in Western Africa and is in itself always has been in a desert. But as the desert encroaches in that whole area, the desert is expanding. When the desert expands and when it climate really dries out, ironically, these sites are often threatened by flash flooding because when it rains, the earth is so dry that it can't absorb any water and the water rushes through buildings and under foundations and things like that, which can cause a lot of damage. I'm curious, just from a choice of words point of view, in your report, you used the word climate change, global climate change, instead of global warming. Do you know why that is? Sure. Um, <laughs> global climate change is a term that we use and it's really interchangeable with global warming, but in some ways global warming is misleading because it makes people think only about higher temperatures. And global climate change impacts are actually far more complex than that. In some places, it's not going to be immediately warmer. In some places, it, it means that it will be wetter where it had been dry, drier where it had been wet, and different things like that. So we wanted to really try to make people understand the different ways that global okay. warming, which it is, will impact us. What about flooding as far as impacting cultural treasures? Well, that's really the most obvious and in some ways the most imminent threat. As you know, many, many people live along coastlines throughout the world now. And of course, historically, a large portion of the population has always lived along coastlines. So that means along the coast, there's a huge density of cultural heritage sites around the world. And those places, many places, are all vulnerable to rising sea levels that are one of the most important impacts that we're going to see from climate change. Have we actually seen anything yet, or that's just a concern for the near future? 
There are actually sites where it's already starting to happen. It, nowadays, it's more a combination of erosion of coastlines, usually due to loss of wetlands, for instance, in mm -hmm. New Orleans area and the Gulf Coast, or loss of the vegetation around coastlines that help buffer them from the waves. Um, we have a site in Tanzania where medieval buildings are starting to slip into the sea because of the loss of the natural barriers to the coast that used to be there. And so one of our interests now is to figure out how to do both cultural preservation and nature conservation at the same time so that we can support both efforts. This must be gratifying. Do you actually feel like you're accomplishing anything with this, with this work of yours? Well, we like to think that we're at least helping people understand why they should care about these questions and trying to figure out new solutions for them. When people talk about climate change, it's often hard to get your head around why or when these sorts of problems are going to impact you. What exactly does it mean to human life that a certain kind of butterfly is going to die out and things like that? But when you talk about losing your favorite places, the history of your own ancestors, it really puts a human time scale on the imp of climate change, and that, I think, is important. And simplistic or trite as it might sound, when it's gone, it's gone. And we can wake up and find that these important parts of our heritage are no longer with us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, you mentioned also pollution being uh, part of this year's theme of the man-made threats to our heritage. What sites, what treasures do you see lately threatened by man-made pollution? Well, anything that was built before the Industrial Revolution in general is threatened often by pollution because the stone and brick and all of the materials that are used to make buildings were not, you know, they lasted 2,000 years without pollution. But when you look at what happens in 100 years to those same stones, it's a dramatic difference. For instance, if you look at buildings in, you know, that what was ancient Rome, of course, we take them for granted that they'd been there for 2,000 years, they'll be there for 2,000 more. But in fact, the change of the air quality around them is pollution literally eats away at marble. And so that's one of the things that we have to really worry about. So do you actually recognize something that's a precious artifact and uh, realize this government doesn't seem to be doing anything about it and recommend that they wake up and take it indoors? Is that, is that the solution to this? Well, we rarely recommend that anything be moved inside, but there are often situations, and not anything on this list at the moment, but for instance, in Athens, there have been sculptures outside in the Acropolis that were replaced by casts long ago, and that often happens not just for pollution or not because someone doesn't want to do anything about it, but just to protect them in general, again, because the world has changed and to leave a statue outside in the air that we now breathe is not going to make it last as long as it used to. Oh, you can see what happens when some of these art treasures are left outside just for a generation in today's acidic air, and uh, while it seems a shame mm -hmm. to have to take it indoors, it's much better than leaving outdoors and losing it in a generation. Well, there are difficult decisions that we do have to make, and there's going to be many more coming up, unfortunately. Right. Now, we're talking also about global tourism having a negative impact on these fragile and unprotected places. Give me an example of uh, some sort of cultural or archaeological treasure that just is not holding up very well under the weight of global tourism. Well, I think perhaps the most famous site on our current list is Machu Picchu, which is vastly more popular as a visitor destination than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And it's a site that is much beloved, and I have never been there, and I'm dying to go and will absolutely go if I get the chance. But I think it's important for us to realize that all of us who want to go visit these sites need to try to think about our own impact on them when we go. And it's the mass tourism and perhaps thoughtless, uncontrolled tourism that really is the problem. A responsible tourist can go see a site and, as they say, take only pictures and leave only footprints. Right. And we can all do that without causing a problem. In fact, Paula from Richmond sent us, in Virginia, sent us an email, and Paula writes, how can one travel to some of these 100 endangered sites and not disturb the fragile environments, ecosystems, or sites? Is there ever a case when you just think people should not go there because it can't withstand the, the traffic? What can we do if we want to be sensitive to this? Well, it's always important to realize that you're not the only one who's been there and not the only one who's going to be there. So whenever you have an instinct to pick up a little piece of something to take home with you, resist it. <laughs> because if thousands of people did that, then we'd be left with very little at Machu Picchu and other sites. Try not to take anything away. Try not to leave any mark of yourself. 
think about how you get there. People should seek out as much as possible ways to get there and stay there that are helpful to the local community that will leave as little a mark on the sites that they visit. I would never tell anyone that they absolutely should never go somewhere. But just as no one's allowed to climb the pyramids anymore, you shouldn't try to scramble over ancient walls or dig up anything or leave your water bottles lying around. I think that should just be an ethic of a thoughtful traveler. I know that when you go to the uh, great museums in Europe, it might say no flash because a flash will fade a painting just a little bit. And you think, well, one flash won't matter. But all day long, thousands of people are coming there and flashing. And pretty soon, that painting won't be as bright and, and colorful as before. And as you said, when people are trudging through these precious ancient sites, you pick up one little piece of mosaic from a Roman floor, and that's not sustainable, and pretty soon that Roman mosaic floor will be long gone. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Michelle Berenfeld, and Michelle is the director of initiatives at the World Monuments Fund, and every two years they publish the world's 100 most endangered sites list. If you want to check out the latest listing of the world's most endangered sites, go to worldmonumentswatch.org. And Mary Lou in Kirkland, Washington, emails us, and uh, Mary Lou uh, comments, China, Yangtze River Dam, Three Gorges area. I saw this area in 2001 while the dam was still being built. Is the dam finished now? And how has it changed the region, including the Three Gorges area? Are there still boat tours in this area? Uh, Michelle, what's with the Yangtze River Dam and how that threatens the Chinese culture and heritage? The Three Gorges Dam is actually a rather controversial project as far as I know. I'm not an expert on what's happening um, with that right this second. But the problem of dams in China and in countries all over the world is that they are vastly changing the landscapes around them. Dams have a huge impact on cultural heritage around the world, not just in China but in many other places. And as time goes on and water becomes a scarcer resource, we really have to think about how these kind of indirect impacts of climate change and our environmental impact on the world are going to affect cultural heritage sites. In China, their booming population, their booming economy, as well as their extraordinarily rich cultural heritage is causing a lot of different types of problems that need to be considered. Michelle, I'd like to talk uh, for the last couple of minutes just about some American sites that are uh, threatened. I noticed that the Hopi Indian petroglyphs are threatened, and according to your report, they're being vandalized into oblivion. What's up with that? Yeah, this is an amazing, uh, huge site in Arizona where there are Hopi Native American inscriptions basically carved into rocks in this uh, sort of barren area of Arizona. And unfortunately, a lot of people who walk by want to join the Hopi in carving their names and their ideas into the rocks, though they seem to be somewhat less poetic sometimes. This is causing great damage to the ancient inscriptions, which are still very meaningful to Native American people and also to the rest of us where they represent the history of that place. And what about Route 66? That's on your list, too. Yeah, Route 66, uh, one of our watch panelists, the people who help us select our site, called Route 66 the Silk Road of the Americas, which I thought was rather picturesque. (laughs) Route 66, as we all know, is mostly damaged in some ways by obsolescence because it was replaced by bigger highways and things like that. But it really is a route through and in itself a cultural site, a cultural landscape along the way across America. And all the little pieces of it and the long stretches of it are endangered by a variety of things, sometimes total abandonment and other times encroaching development. So it's something that is a complex series of questions that we're working on, how to save that so people can enjoy it and uh, and not abuse it. And once again, the World Monuments Fund just calls attention to this risk or this threat that we're going to lose something, part of our heritage, Route 66. And do you then take a step to get people to actually do something about this? Or is your mission finished basically when you put it on this list? Oh, our mission is never finished, I'm afraid. Um, We do try as much as we can to help the nominators or ourselves provide support for individual sites. Sometimes that's directly providing funding through grants and our own personnel helping people develop plans and do interventions at the site to conserve them. At Route 66, for instance, we have a program now that we've developed um, with the American Express Company for sustainable tourism. And Route 66 is receiving 
grants for a project that they're developing a plan for how to make it a more sustainable tourist site over the years. Wow, this is just a very important work you're doing. We've been talking with Michelle Berenfeld, who's the director of initiatives at the World Monuments Fund. They've published their every two years uh, version of the world's 100 most endangered sites. To check that out, you can go to worldmonumentswatch.org. Michelle, in your opinion, what's the one greatest catastrophe happening now that, that we should know about? Well, as I said, there's many different places in the world that are suffering a great many threats. But the single most concentrated area where cultural heritage that is enormously significant is being lost at an alarming rate, I think right now is in Iraq. And there's a a number of reasons associated with the war, including widespread looting, military conflict and new construction and uncontrolled development and all kinds of problems. But I think that we're losing some of our most important and by far our oldest cultural heritage sites in the world there to now. Because that was the Fertile Crescent in the home of the Babylonian civilization, even in some people's minds, the Garden of Eden. Indeed. The world's first cities and the first places anyone wrote anything down happened in Iraq. So it's the beginning for everybody. Michelle, to wrap things up, what is the message in 2008 from the World Monuments Fund to all of us concerned travelers? Well, the first message, of course, is that there are many, many places around the world that are extraordinary and important and that we want to protect. And the second message is that we're both the problem and the solution. I think that each of us can think about how we as people traveling the world can do better by these places that we care about and that we all share. While we've caused many of the problems that they face, we also are the same people who can save them. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. How can I help but fear for the ones to come will wonder why we left if for future years to heal the wounds we've created Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information and links about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Thanks to Jim Richards at UC Berkeley and to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. In the only green world That's turning around the sun Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Ball down dancing In the only